All right, we're in Luke chapter 8 this morning, so please open up your Bibles as we look at the parable of the sower. I'm just going to jump right in to Luke chapter 8, verse 4. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told his disciples a parable. Well, he told this parable. It wasn't just to his disciples. A farmer went out to sow his seed. Now, let me bring you to the place. Let's say you're with me in Israel right now. I want to give you the idea of the typical Israeli farm. This room would contain about two of them. They weren't that big. Now, yeah, there were farmers who owned farms and had lots of servants. There was always that. But the typical family had their own plot of land that fed them, and it was about half the size of this room. So you could really have about two farms in this room, maybe even a little more, depending on the size of the farm. And the way it was done, they were side by side. You may not live next to your farm either. Your farm may be here. You may live, you know, a mile away. But there would be like Jose's farm over here, and this would be like John's farm over here. And everybody knew this was Jose's farm, and everybody knew this was John's farm. It was the family farm, had been for 500 years, and every day they worked their farm. And in between the two farms would be a little row, a little narrower than the aisle right here. Probably, not quite, maybe half that would separate the two. And there would be just enough room to walk in between the farms without stepping on stuff. And all the rocks that they found in the fields would be piled here too. Okay? So the typical farm would be small, would have another farm right next to it, plot of ground, and there would be a little rocky path in between the two farms. Okay? So when he starts talking about the sower went out to sow, I want you to see in your mind's eye, just using this room, what the farm looked like. So the guy would have some seeds, and he wouldn't poke a hole, plant one. He'd just scatter the seeds. That's how they, you know, throw, throw it out there, just spread it out. So he goes out, and he throws out his seeds, and some fell along the path, and was trampled on, and the birds of the air ate it up. Some fell on the rocks, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. And other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. And still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. And when he said this, he called out. He called out, so you know now he's raising his voice. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, he spoke to them in a parable. Give it to a teenager, they'll know how to turn it off. <laughs> I kid you not. There was a guy here yesterday. He, um, check this out. He, he found us on God's Learning Channel. He watches the Saturday show. And he lives in Lubbock, Texas. He drove all night so he could be at services yesterday morning. All night. But the funny thing is, I mean, that, that's just stunning. But he saw my daughter when he walked into services and he handed her his phone. He said, could you show me how to turn this off? <laughs> Guy is smart. I do the exact same thing. I don't know how that works. Give it to one of the kids. I'll figure it out. So he shouts out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. But he just spoke in a parable. Now, this is the first parable that's recorded in Luke. So remember, Jesus' ministry is fairly new. And now this, he's changing already. Something has happened 
that starts him speaking in parables. We don't know from Luke, but from the other Gospels we do know. And you're going to understand in just a minute why he starts speaking in parables. Have you ever wondered why he spoke in parables? You wouldn't be the first. The, the disciples didn't know either. They asked him. In fact, Matthew 13.10 says, Then the disciples came to Jesus and asked him, Why do you use parables when you talk to the people? He didn't understand. I've read some commentaries. I've listened to some sermons. Read some books. And one of the common explanations for a Jesus teaching in parables, are you ready for this? To help people understand better. I'm like, What? Do you understand parables better? If he just told me what he meant, then I'd understand better. I don't like that explanation, but it seems to be the one people are resting on, and I don't understand why, because the Bible says quite clearly why he spoke in parables, and it was just the opposite of that. It was to help people not understand. But since that doesn't line up with the Jesus they appreciate, they have to come up with a new reason. Steve, did I just hear you right? You said Jesus spoke in parables so people wouldn't understand him? That's exactly what I said. So the disciples asked him, why do you talk to the people in parables? He said, quote, because their minds are dull. They have stopped up their ears and have closed their eyes. Otherwise, their eyes would see, their ears would hear, their minds would understand, and they would turn to me, says God, and I would heal them. So let me paraphrase to you. He was quoting Old Testament passage of Scripture. He was quoting a prophecy. Let me paraphrase to you what the prophecy means. I speak to them in parables because they have plugged their own ears. They have closed their own eyes. Otherwise, they would repent, turn to me, and be healed. You realize free will means we can cut ourselves off from God. God's trying to tell us something, and we're going, blah, 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 I can't hear you, blah, 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 blah. I didn't hear what he said. So, God's response to people who choose not to listen to him and choose not to hear him, choose not to obey or follow him, is to stop giving them good news. In fact, Jesus said it elsewhere, don't cast your pearls before swine. What happens if you get a beautiful handful of saltwater pearls and toss them into the swine? What are they going to do with them? Make a necklace and wear them? No, they're just going to walk on them. They don't care about them. They're going to trample them into their own waste and into the mud. So you don't give pearls to swine. In a similar sense, if somebody is rejected, 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 there comes a point where God cuts them off and says, I'm not giving you any more. And there's a hard side to that, and there's a loving side to that. And I think both are valid. The harsh side is obvious. They've been offered, they've rejected, they've been offered, they've rejected, enough's enough. Done. But on the loving side, the scripture says, to whom much is given, much is required. So you keep giving people more good. When you know they're going to reject it, they're going to be judged harder. So stop giving them more good. They'll be judged less. I think both are valid. Free, free will means we can cut ourselves off from God. How many of you have ever, ever used to make faces at your siblings growing up? I want to see your hands. And what did your mom say? You keep making that face, it's going to get stuck that way. Absolutely. Well, thank God it never did. Moms are wrong at least once. But then again, maybe the face can be indicative of the heart. 
Because I believe when people reject God, reject God, reject God, eventually they get stuck that way. They get past the point of no return. Everybody knows, that is, people who know the Bible, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But what most people don't know is that it says three times that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. God allows people to choose, and then God judges people and actually confirms their choice. Let me show you one of the scariest passages in all the Bible. It's from 2 Thessalonians 9, 1 through, uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12. I'll put it up on the screen for you so you can follow along. The coming of the lawless one, so we're talking about the Antichrist here. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. And for this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they'll believe the lie. And so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. You notice this says a couple of things. One, it says when the Antichrist comes, he's going to deceive people. That's not the scary part. The scary part is God will help him do it. That's what it said. Did you see that? Because they refuse to love the truth and be saved, for this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. It's not like God's helping the Antichrist. It's like the Antichrist is helping God. See, there comes a place where people have made their decision and God has accepted it, like Pharaoh. Now, so why didn't God destroy Pharaoh as soon as that he got past the point of no return? Because he could still use Pharaoh. God can make use of anything or anyone. So God thought, you know what? I can take this stubborn guy who's going to reject me, reject me. In fact, I'll even help him reject me. Because then word will spread about my amazing miracles, which I will multiply upon Egypt. And then millions of people will hear about me and many of them will get saved. Yeah, I can use a guy like you, Pharaoh. Well, it's the same idea with the Antichrist. There's going to be people who have rejected, rejected, rejected. Antichrist is going to come on the scene and God says, yeah, I could use you because I need you to make the Antichrist club to help me winnow out and make the believer club. It's scary. We always think that with God we can put him off, put him off and Right before I die, I'll get saved. I'll repent then. There's a couple problems with that reasoning. First of all, when are you going to die? What if you miss it by a minute? Oops. See, nobody knows when they're going to die. Oh, yeah, I'm going to die of old age and I'll have three weeks to consider my fate and then choose the Lord. You might get hit by a bus and that's that. You might have a brain aneurysm. You don't know when you're going to die. First problem. Second problem as you harden your heart, your heart gets hard. And you get to the point where you don't care anymore. So, oh, Steve, that would never happen. Listen, I've been there. Lots of old people dying in hospice and hospitals. Comes with the job. Hard as hard can be. They've made their decision. I try to share the Lord with them. They're not interested. Now, don't get me wrong. Some people are. But you just never know who's going to and who's not going to. Oh, I've lived my life. Can't teach an old dog new tricks. I've made up my mind. Well, what if there really is a hell? Well, I'll let you know in a few minutes. 
They don't care. They really don't care. So don't think you can constantly resist God and reject God and someday come back to him because the day is going to come, and I don't know when it is, where the switch is flipped and you're beyond the point of no return. You have hardened your heart and have made your decision. Listen, God loves people. He sent his son to die for us. God has offered us everything. He offers us to be heirs of the universe and joint heirs with Christ. However, if we reject him, we then become his enemies. And God will use his enemies for his purposes. I see it, it's kind of like sending false intel to the enemy when you're at war. You know, people would do that. They would like capture a spy and then feed him misinformation and then send the spy, let the spy escape or go free. And then the spy bring, and they're using the spy for their own purposes. That's how I see God using people like Pharaoh and those who harden their hearts. Antichrist, feeding false intel. Let him bring it back to the enemy and let it wreak havoc and help us on the team of righteousness. God conceals the truth from those who reject the truth. That's why Jesus spoke in parables. And yet God reveals the truth to honest and true seekers. Now this is extremely important. Whether you get the truth or don't get the truth is your choice. It's entirely and completely up to you. Listen, Hebrews 3, verse 8. This is probably Paul talking to a bunch of Jewish people about Jesus. Some of them believe, some of them didn't. He's preaching to them. And he reminds them about what happened in the wilderness when we left Egypt. And just like Pharaoh, we hardened our hearts and rejected God. Here's what he says. Do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert. That was verse 8 of chapter 3. And verse 12 says, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. It's up to us. And the scriptures warn us, don't harden your heart, don't harden your heart. This is scary business. You might get to the point where it's stuck that way. Just don't do it. It's not worth it. So Jesus gave or spoken parables to conceal information from those who had already rejected the truth. Now, I told you in Luke, we don't see it, but in the other Gospels, we do. At this point, he's already been confronted. He's already been challenged. He's already been rejected by significant portions of the uh, establishment. So now when he brings the crowds together, he often teaches in parables. And the establishment has no idea what he's talking about anymore. Well, the thing is, though, his disciples didn't know what he's talking about either. But he fixed that. Chapter 8, verse 10. They asked him why he spoke in two parables. Here's what he said. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to others I speak in parables so that though seeing, they may not see. And though hearing, they may not understand. This then is the meaning of the parable. Okay, he spoke to the masses, spoke in parables. They had no clue what he was talking about. Then he went aside with his people. And then he told them what he was talking about. There was always the opportunity to know the truth for those who honestly wanted it. He said the seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear it, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. 
Now, previously, you might have thought, well, then it's not their fault. It's the devil's fault. He's snatching the seed. No, it's their fault. I've already shared with you the reason why he speaks in parables, the reason why the seed falls on deaf ears. They've already made the decision. So, kind of like the devil takes it out of their heart would be like in that Thessalonians passage where he partners with the Antichrist to do his plan. Same concept. Those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on the good soil, by the way, that's where you're sitting right now. None of you are sitting in the rocky place. None of you are sitting in the aisle and the thorns are in the footpath. You're in my farm right now. So this is good. The seed fell amongst the thorns, no good, but the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. All right, I've got a table I want to show you up here. Let's bring that up. We've got these four categories. The soil on the left, followed by the response, the result, and then the reason. We've got four types of soil. The path, the dirt road that everybody just tramples on and steps on, which even if the birds didn't come and gobble it up, there's no way that seed could grow. The ground is rock hard, nothing going to happen there. The soil is the path. The response is, they hear the message. But it falls on deaf ears. They don't pay any attention to it. So the result is no crop, no fruit, no produce. And the reason the scripture gives us is the devil snatches it from their hearts. Their hearts are just as hard as the soil that the seed falls on. That's the first one. The second one is the rocky ground where all the fields rocks are piled up. The response is they hear it with joy. So this sounds like it's going to work. Hey, they've heard the good news. They receive it with joy. And the result is no crop. Ah, that one should have took. What happened with that one? No root. They believe for a while and then they fall away. Testing and trials get in front of their face. And for whatever reason, that stops the fruit from coming. It's interesting, though. Everybody has tests and trials. So that's their excuse for not bearing fruit, but it's not the reason. You following what I'm saying? It's a horrible example, but it's true, so I'm going to have to share it with you. Um, there's fewer and fewer of these people left, but their children are still alive. And I'm talking about Holocaust survivors. I, I've met several in my day, Holocaust survivors. In fact, the first Jewish person I introduced Yeshua to, who gave his life to Yeshua, was a Holocaust survivor. But some Holocaust survivors hate Yeshua because of the Holocaust. Okay, well, I wasn't there. I've got no business talking about the, you know, what, what, what would I do if I was there? I wasn't there. All I know is that some Holocaust survivors come to believe in Jesus, and some Holocaust survivors use the Holocaust as a reason not to. And some children of Holocaust survivors, it's the exact same thing. To a lesser degree, for us in this great country of ours and to others in other countries who are suffering almost just as badly, we all have trials and tribulations. But some of us draw closer to God through them and some of us further away. 
I don't know. But those who fell upon rocky ground, further away. Those that fell amongst the thorns, they hear the word of God too. The result, no crop. What happened with them? It says that life's worries, riches and pleasures choked out the fruitfulness of the word. So they heard the word of God, they liked it. But they also liked the world. You know, things that life gives you. The riches, the pleasures, the funds, the whatever, you know, fill in the blank. It's as if they like God, he's on the top 10 list. All the things I like in the world, God's up there on the top 10 list. That's great. Problem is, there's not supposed to be a top 10 list that God's on. There's supposed to be a top one list that God's on. And he's either top or he's not. The Ten Commandments, which is another top ten list, starts off, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. Not before as in your number one and their three through five. Before means in his presence. And since God is everywhere, it's basically saying you shall have no other gods. And anything that we consider so important in our life that it keeps us from walking with God is a God. So there's a top one list. God wants to be in it, just like the scripture says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your hearts. Not half of it, not some of it, all of it. So, choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures. The path, no fruit. Rocky ground, no fruit. Thorns, no fruit. Good soil. They hear... They retain, they persevere. Finally, we have a crop. And it says, for the reason here, because the word fell upon a noble and good heart. So, out of these four soils, only one bears fruit. The common understanding of the parable of the sower is that um, all these people hear the gospel and some of them get saved and some of them lose their salvation except for some at the bottom who are in the good soil they don't lose their salvation that is a common understanding but i don't accept that understanding of it i don't think that's what it's teaching i don't think it's talking about people losing their salvation but it is talking about who gets saved and why they get saved i don't think it's about losing salvation for several reasons and that's not what my sermon's about whether you can lose your salvation or not but i want to point this out to you if you're a farmer, you don't care whether the seed fell in the rocks, the path, or the thorns. It's irrelevant to you. You just care about this seed. What's the goal of throwing out the seed? A crop. That's the goal, right? So if you're a farmer and some of it springs up amongst the rocks and it's there for a few weeks and then dies, you don't think, well, that's half good crop. It's worthless. It's just as worthless as what the bird snatched out of the ground. Now, if it grows amongst the thorns and grows up and yet bears no crop, you don't think, hey, that's a 75% good crop right there. That's a worthless crop. The only crop that's good is a crop. If it bears fruit, now you got fruit. If it doesn't bear fruit, you don't have fruit. By the fruits you shall know them. Same concept. So I think the only people in this who are what we would call saved are the people who persevere. The ones who actually bear fruit. I believe the scriptures teach that people can hear the gospel, appear to follow God, but not really be followers of God. They look like believers, 
but they're not believers. Now, how do you know if somebody's a believer? By their fruit. How do you know if somebody's a marathon runner? Starting the race or finishing the race? There's only one way, finishing the race. You can start 20 marathons, but if you've never finished one, you're not a marathon runner. You, you see what I'm saying? You've got to finish the race, then you're a marathon runner. I could start one tomorrow, you know. I am now a marathon runner. I can get a number, you know, 777 on my chest. Represent. The gun can go off. I'll make it 100 yards before I pull a tendon or something. But I'm a marathon runner. No, it's the one who finishes the race, not the one who starts the race. It doesn't matter if the seed fell on the path, the rocks, or the thorns. That's just wasted seed. It's the good ground that matters. People can look saved and not be saved. 1 John 2, 18 and 19. Children, this is the last hour. You heard that the enemy of Christ would appear at this time? Antichrist. And many of Christ's enemies have already appeared. Antichrists. So we know that the last hour is here. These people came from our own group, yet they were not part of us. If they had been part of us, they would have stayed with us. But they left, which proves that they did not belong to us in the first place, that they were never part of our group. These people started the race, but they didn't finish it. Had they finished the race, that would have been proof that they were part of our group. But since they left our group, see, they were part of our church. They were part of our fellowship. They were part of the Christian community. But they left the Christian community, which is evidence that they were never really part of it. It's not who, it doesn't matter if you start the race. It only matters if you finish it. So how do you know if somebody's really saved? Well, you don't always know. You look for fruit. But if they abandon the faith, bingo, you know now they never were the real deal. Oh, they looked like it for a while, but they really weren't the real deal. That's exactly what 1 John is talking about. And it's important to know, I mean, people can look saved and not be saved. That calls a wolf in sheep clothing. And you've got to know, because wolves can hurt you. A wolf in sheep's clothing can hurt you. And so you need to know the truth from the false. A wolf in sheep's clothing could hurt you, but maybe it won't hurt you. You never know which of the flock he's going to go after. If there's a wolf in sheep's clothing in here, he might go after you, but not you. So you might be okay. You might not be okay. I don't know. It's still dangerous, but it might be survivable for some of you. You know, you ever heard that story about the guy and his buddy out hiking, and they saw a bear? So the guy sits down, takes off his hiking boots, puts on his tennis shoes, and starts running. His friend said, you can't outrun a bear. He said, I know, but I can outrun you. <laughs> So the wolf in sheep's clothing, it may get you, it may not get you. But there's something even scarier than the wolf in sheep's clothing. Something that will definitely hurt you. Not maybe, but definitely. Because we can be deceived about whether people are really believers or not. But here's the scary thing. We can be deceived about whether we're really believers or not. What if you're the wolf and you don't even know it? If you have lied to yourself... I can't help you. There's no getting through. You can deceive yourself. And that's the big warning in Scripture. Thus by your, their fruit you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Get away from me, you evildoers. They did miracles. So will the Antichrist. They drove out demons. So did Judas Iscariot. Doing miracles is not evidence of walking with God. It's not proof, at least. You realize the greatest man in Scripture did no miracles? Amongst those born of women, none are greater than John, said Jesus. And it specifically says in the Gospels that John did no miracles. In fact, he's a prophet who never prophesied. I mean, he spoke on behalf of God, but he never told the future kind of prophecy. So he told no future. He did no miracles. He's the greatest man ever lived. Next to Yeshua, Jesus himself. By their fruit you shall know them, not by their miracles. And in this case, Jesus uses the word, only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Fruit is obedience. It's following God. It's walking with him. All right, so here's what we learned today. Jesus spoke in parables for a reason. God conceals the truth from those who reject him. God conceals the truth from those who reject the truth. And God reveals the truth to honest and true seekers. Good ground. The parable of the sower shows us that only those who produce a crop are the saved one. It's by their fruits that we know them. People can appear to be one of us, but not really be one of us. And even worse yet, people can fool themselves. We can fool ourselves. So just like the writer of Hebrews urged the children of Israel not to harden their hearts, I'll urge you to follow this teaching of Scripture that says, examine yourselves to see if you're really in the faith. There's a passage of Scripture that tells us to analyze ourselves. And I'm going to give you two, two ways to do that. Two questions to ask yourself so that you can examine yourself to see if you're really in the faith. First question. This is something you have to do in the stillness of your own heart when you're at home, not being distracted, and you can really, really, really think on it. It's too important to give it a glib answer, a quick response. Here's the question. Do I truly believe in my heart of hearts that Jesus died for my sins and rose again? Do I really, really believe that happened? Is that a, something that he did? That's the first question. And the second one, have I fully committed myself to obeying Christ? Fully is the key word there. Not the top ten list. Man, he's number three. I call him number one. But if I really think about it, he's just on the list. Other things do get in the way. Please answer those two questions. And please join me in prayer. Lord God, when Jesus was here, he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And I pray that prayer for those listening in right now. I pray that you would open up ears, chip away at hardened hearts, and help people to hear, to give their lives to you, and produce a crop. If there's anything we can do, Lord, for most of us in here are yours. Show us 
Help us to do it. Help us to be a blessing to others, a source of life, love, and joy, a fount of truth. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Yair Adonai Panavalecha Vihunecha Yisadonai Panavalecha Vyosem Lecha Shalom May the Lord bless you and may the Lord keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you his peace.